Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Legendarium Podcast. Uh, today is an author shelf episode. If you recall, the author shelf is where we bring an author onto the show. And in order to get to know them a little bit better, instead of your standard interview, we actually ask them to pull a book off of their shelves, something that is uh, important to them, that has been influential in some way uh, in their life, in their career, whatever the case may be. Uh, so that's what we're doing today. I am your host, Craig Hanks, and uh, with me today, we've got, well, somebody whose ideas are so odious, I think the only way to get him off of our backs is to gift him a moon and send him there. It's Ryan Bruckman. Oh, I know what I'm getting for Christmas this year. <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I hear that she's really close to cracking Ansible communication technology and if only we didn't have to steal her away for an hour, I'm sure she could get it done this morning. It's Mary Robinette Kowal. Hello. Hello. I'm happy to be here. You know, and time so is mutable, so I can I can just work on that at any any point along that linear timeline. You already have. You you That's correct. are already you're always working on it. Yeah, absolutely. Hey everybody, Craig here. I apologize, we're missing a chunk of this particular audio, which is really too bad because right at the beginning of the episode is when I ask the author coming on to Author's Shelf, why did you pick this book? And Mary Robinette had some, some great things to say about uh, how this book made her think about what it means to live in a dystopia or utopian society, and um, it was all very interesting. Trust me, but unfortunately, you'll never hear it. The audio got lost in the upload process because we were recording online. And she was on hotel Wi-Fi, and you, you know how it goes. Uh, but the interview did pick up uh, a few minutes later, and so we do have the rest of it. There's one more break. Hopefully, I can edit it somewhat seamlessly so you don't notice the other one. Uh, but this one was large enough that I thought I might come in and just say, oh, sorry. Sorry to you, the listeners. Sorry to Mary Robinette that we are missing that audio, uh, but the rest of the conversation is too good not to put it out there. So here we go. Let's get to the rest of it. Let's see. Is it going? Yeah, it seems yeah. to be. Um, all right, Ryan, I wanted to ask you next, basically just the, the basic question. How did it go for you? This is, is this your first Le Guin? Did you do any Le Guin with us earlier in the podcast? I genuinely couldn't remember because I'm familiar, like I was familiar with uh, some of Le Guin's work, specifically Wizard of Earthsea is the very common mm -hmm. entry point. And I know I've had discussions about Wizard of Earthsea. So I feel like I've read it, but I couldn't recall enough of it. So I'm like, just going to, I'm just going to treat this as <laughs> my first. first. Uh, yeah, it may not actually be, but I will treat it as my first here. <laughs> um, and it was, it was definitely, it's a different it's a different uh, writing style, a different feel than what I'm used to, just considering a lot of what we read sits in mm -hmm. the more modern, common uh, epic fantasy things, the Sandersons, the things like that. So that's uh, this this had a different feel and required a different approach for me um, to truly try and uh, appreciate and understand it because it just has it, it sits at a little bit less of a I'll say a little bit slower pace mm -hmm. um, going through uh, than a lot of things that are more cinematic. I'd say that's fair. Yeah. It um, reminds me, actually, as you say that, it reminds me of when we first read Robin Hobb. Yeah. And I, and I just, I hated that first book. I, I couldn't stand it. And then I realized the reason I couldn't stand it was because my expectations were something very different. Yeah. Um, and then she brought in something I was not expecting. 
um, and I hadn't been prepped for it. You know, I didn't do any, you know, outside reading before the book and all that. And so it just, it was so jarring. The, um, the analogy I use a lot is, uh, it's when you pick up a, a glass of Sprite, but then it turns out it's water. Um, there's nothing wrong with water, but you still gag because it's so unexpected. And then you're like, oh no, it's just water. Oh no, this is great. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's a bit like that. Anyway, is that, uh, it, it, I guess what I'm getting at is this book is one of those ones where you've got to have certain expectations going in or you might instinctively gag um, and before realizing, oh, okay, all right, it's just a different type of Yeah, uh, potentially. It's very contemplative. Yeah, it's it's one where I know, especially uh, going through the beginning, reading that for the first, uh, probably, I mean, we're getting through his... Uh, history in his youth through that sequence. I'm sitting here kind of going, all right, all right. When I'm, I'm waiting for the, I'm waiting for the shooter drop. I'm waiting for things to happen. And it's not really about progressing the, you know, the exciting plot point. It's about these conversations he's having. It's a series of vignettes of his past, things like that, especially in the early book where it's, here's where he's getting his viewpoints and it's learning about what's made him who he is to the point where he is traveling to try and consider bringing these two worlds together. Is that going to be possible? And this is why I didn't fit here uh, with, with uh, in, in my home on the moon in my home planet here. And I'm not going to really fit here because I'm from there and I've got a lot of that, but I don't. So it, it really, it isolates him, puts him on the Island. And the only way you get that is by understanding these vignettes in there and that's not that's not a modern tactic um in in writing um, at least not commonly yeah at least co yeah not commonly so yeah mary robinette you said something interesting which was uh you said something along the lines of you know i i, I realized i live in the utopia you know and that there are other things out there there is um i i've seen a subtitle for this book that I, I haven't actually seen on the book, but you see it online in, in certain places, an ambiguous utopian novel or something yeah. like that. It, uh, so my question for you is, what do you, what do you think that means? What is the utopia? Are there multiple utopias? You know, what, what do we make of that concept? Yeah, I, I think that is, it's one of the the pieces that's so meaty about it because, you know, is is Antares the the utopia? Because it's this collective. That's the, the anarchist moon, the, right? The anarchist moon is is the anarchist moon the utopia because it's this collective. You know, they don't have a lot, but everybody cooperates. Or is the utopia the planet where they have all of the wealth and? you know, and can you know, have this enormous luxury. And the answer, depending on who your POV character is, both, depending on what they value. And and I, I love that. Um, and then the other piece of it that I also love that she's just kind of drawing this quiet line under is that uh, with the the main planet in particular, that 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 utopia does not exist without without a servant class, without people to um, you know to to take wealth from, and and it's it's just this this undercurrent that makes you think about 
property and possessions. And I, I sound, you know, I sound very much like everybody give you all of your things away. Um, and it's, <laughs> it's not that so much as is like, you know, think about it, do it mindfully, be aware of, mm. of where things are coming from. No, it's, it's what you were saying at the very beginning, which was, you, you know, I, I live in a certain type of society, but this isn't the only type of thing that exists. And, and being aware of something outside of your immediate yeah. sphere is valuable, right? Um, a, as I was reading through the book, I was reminded of uh, something I learned in the last, uh, you know, five years or so, which is that the word utopia is actually the wrong word. We're, we're using mm -hmm. the wrong word. Um, in if we're actually using the real Greek, it would start with an E, uh, oh. and a utopia with an E at the beginning would be good place. Um, but a utopia without the E just utopia means no place as in it cannot exist. Hmm. It's not a thing that can be real. Hmm. Um, and I, I kept, I kept thinking about that as I was reading through this book, it was driving me crazy for the first, say, quarter of the book as I'm as I'm reading about these uh, anarchists. Uh, and then he goes to the, the surface of the planet where, with all the, the capitalists. And everything was so cranked up to 11 that it kind of made me feel like she was um, playing around with this idea of, of the no-E utopia, the no place, where it's like, I'm, I'm just going to crank it up and see what happens. It's 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 like a villain who is, you know, the mustache twirling villain where, you know, real people don't think and act and uh, talk this way. But for the purposes of the story, we're going to crank this villain up to 11. And I, I felt that way about kind of these societies just for illustrative purposes. We're going to crank that dial yeah. all the way up um, and, and see what happens. But I it took me a while to realize that was what was going on because I was like, <laughs> You know, no, no society could last this way for this long without collapsing, you know, in, in either direction. They're so extreme. Yeah. And, and at the same time, it's, if you, you know, it, it is so much about the, the perception of the character, because if you've done any travel outside of the U S when you return your perceptions of what, what's going on here, like I spent, um, I spent a month in, um, uh, in Bihar, India, which is the poorest mm. state in India. And we were out in rural Bihar. So places without, uh, without running water, without electricity. Um, and this was, and I should also say this was, um, this was in the, the late nineties that I was there. But one of the things that, that struck me when I came back was, uh, specifically was we, we came back to, um, to Calcutta and we went to this hotel and it was like one of those old grand colonial hotels with incredibly tall ceilings. And after a month of either concrete or dirt floors, I walk in, I'm like, Oh my goodness, it's so luxurious. Look at all of these things. And over the next three days that we were there, the lens kept dropping off and I'm like, and it's really shabby and run down and mm. the carpet is totally worn. And if I were staying here in the U S I would be like, Oh my God, have they ever cleaned this? These, <laughs> you know, these British people are clinging on to stuff. And then when I got back to the U S 
someone put down a glass of water and I had the simultaneous reaction of, oh, thank heavens and to be in a place where I don't have to think about it. And also that water is not safe. Mm, right. <laughs> and, you know, it's all of these small things that we take for granted that can seem like it's, you know, it's cranked up to 11, you know, but if you, if it's stuff that you've never experienced, you know, of course it's going to seem over the top. Of course it's going to seem huge, you know, like, but at the same time, you know, some of the parties that he was going to, like, that, those, you you watch TikTok and some of those parties are not, <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're not an exaggeration. <laughs> Thank goodness Ursula Le Guin never had to experience TikTok. Let's oh, just my. Be grateful for that. God, <laughs> she would have devastated people if she were on TikTok. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just going to live you in that like little you had some world. responses. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that because that's actually that she makes a point of that in the book at one uh, in one moment where they're talking about um, I think the quote uh, you need distance interval mm. the way to see how beautiful the earth is is to see it as the moon the way to see how beautiful life is is from the vantage point of death it's literally the idea that you have to be able to separate yourself and and have the the point of view and perspective of like your example where you were in Bihar and then how everything grows from there, where we, our point of view normally puts us in a place where like, well, yeah, that's, that's clearly crazy, but they others would be like, no, that's, that's, that's the reality. And I think that is, that is a very uh, powerful thing to realize for people, especially today is just to be able to look at it and realize that where you stand in your point of view and your perspective right now is inherently affected by your current environment and your current setup like uh, and the more you can do to get out and figure out what other perspectives are and understand that whether that be through travel or you know just understanding in, in any capacity it's going to give you a better put you in a better position to understand what those some of these pieces like you know how extreme this seems or maybe maybe i live in a little more maybe i'm closer to a utopia than i thought or you know whatever yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so Ryan, you reminded me, I, I kind of wanted to ask, I mean, I've, I've got some myself, but, um, for the two of you, do you have any favorite kind of lines or, or moments uh, The the writing in this is it, that that's my favorite part. Le Guin is, um, is, is quite the prose stylist and she had a few moments. I'll, I'll give you one of mine. I've, I've yes. got a couple, but I'll give you one of mine. And, and then if you have any, I'll be happy to hear them. Uh, let's see, this is way, way back. I mean, in chapter one, or even, I don't remember if it's prologue, honestly, but, but, uh, he had always feared that this would happen more than he had even ever feared death to die is to lose the self. Oh no, I'm, I'm sorry. No, no, I'm, I'm reading the wrong thing. This is, this is terrible. <laughs> there it is. There it is. There it is. His eyes saved him. What they insisted on seeing and reporting to him took him out of the autism of terror. Ooh. And I was like, oh my gosh, oh, the autism of terror. Wow. And, and it made me go and look up the word autism because we have our, you know, our understanding of what autism is. And it's, but, but the definition of the word is just kind of this inability to communicate and speak normally and, uh, and normally, whatever that means. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but the, the autism of terror, I was like, oh my gosh, that's, that's excellent. What a great yeah. line. Yeah. She, yeah. Did, Go ahead. Oh, no, no. Just, yeah, what you said. She's such a, a good prose stylist. Um, 
and and you know also remembering the book was written in 1974 i did think about suggesting something written in the 21st century but also mm. i feel like everybody should read the dispossessed um for for me it it you know again when we talk about wor uh, work that has influenced the way i approach the world uh, there's a line in there um uh, you can't crush ideas by suppressing them. You can only crush them by ignoring them, by refusing to think, refusing to change. And I'm like, that for me is, is such a powerful thing. It's like, yeah, I, I, it is, you know, it is incumbent on me to engage with ideas, even if they're ideas that I am uncomfortable with that uh, that if I want to see things change, I have to engage with stuff. Um, and then the stuff that I don't want to, um, you know, if there's, a, if there's a troll or if there's somebody else that's coming at me, if, you know, or coming at somebody else, if I want to crush their idea, I just, I mean, this is one of those places where like, no, you know what? I'm not going to engage with you. I'm not going to give you the platform. And you have to pick and choose, obviously. But, but just that that idea of, um, of of the choice and of how to engage with an idea and what that does for your brain and those the brains of those around you. And, and even for the idea itself, because mm -hmm. like you say, you you have to in order to crush the idea, you have to engage with it, and by engaging with it, you are legitimizing it in some way. And um, I, sorry, you, you sent my brain down maybe a slightly different path. No, no, it, it, that's it, what it I is, love about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ryan, did you have any uh, bits that you wanted to highlight? There was a uh, conversation that in normal uh, romantic literature, like this would have frustrated me and upset me. Um, <laughs> but it was actually, it's one of those things where it was like, yeah, let's think about this for a minute. And he's having this discussion um, I can't remember who he's having a discussion with, um, but they're talking about uh, what it is that like we all experience. And one guy goes off on this rant about pain. Pain is what we, is the universal truth. We all know this. And, other, and then a woman's like, no, love, love is the universal truth. He's like, no. Um, so it says here, it says, uh, it is our sufferings that bring us together. It is not love. Love does not obey the mind and turns to hate when forced. The bond that binds us is beyond choice. We are brothers. We are brothers in what we share in pain, which each of us must suffer alone in hunger, in poverty, in hope. We know our brotherhood. We know it because we have had, because we have had to learn it. We know that there is no help for us, but from one another that no hand will save us if we do not reach out our hand. And the hand that you reach it out is empty as mine is. You have nothing. You possess nothing. You own nothing. You are free. All you have is what you are and what you give. And so that thing for me at the very beginning, I'm a very romantic person when it comes to literature. He says, I love the idea that love conquers all and love is the great power. And he's like, <laughs> so to take this idea and say, no, 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 you don't understand. Your understanding of how to care for another comes from the shared understanding of what it means to have hunger, what it means to be in these scenarios. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. This isn't romantic, but it doesn't mean that it's wrong. Um, well, yeah. it's it's romantic with a capital R or mm -hmm. something. It's uh, it's not necessarily romantic in the way that we usually use the word yes. now, but yeah. it's yes. but it's still even that idea of of pain being 
the the ultimate driver of humanity is is a romantic notion in a way yeah it it veers the away from the the happy it's not the happy ending drive that that we tend to a lot of times we like that i enjoy there yeah um, but yeah i get what so, you're saying here's an idea for you ryan i i want you to now take that idea of it's not love it's it's not about love it's about pain and go rewatch uh interstellar oh yeah <laughs> then that would be a cool lens to watch that movie through well, you okay. um, go ahead Mary can, can I just because that that quote goes that that passage goes on and, and it's it's one of and and the next bit of it I think is like um so you know it's it, you know in hunger and poverty and hope we know our brotherhood uh, we must know it because we have to learn it we know that there is no help for us but from one another that no hand will save us if we do not reach out our hand and the hand that you reach out is empty, as mine is. You have nothing. You possess nothing. You own nothing. You are free. All you have is what you are and what you give. And that's that's like yes. <laughs> it's it is an interesting idea. I I would I'm I'm gonna noodle on this more, not out loud, because uh, that that would lead me to disaster. Okay, <laughs> uh, but but I uh, but I do like thinking about this, and it actually leads me to something else I wanted to to bring up. It's a, first of all, it's a great line, but it's something that is a recurring theme in this book. And, and the, the line is, um, sorry, the, the precursor to this line is the idea that excess is excrement. Mm, um, mm. And, and that, you know, anything, anything that is excess is not worthwhile. It must be ejected. It must, uh, you know, we, we must get rid of it. Um, so he's so he grew up in that kind of society. The excess is excrement idea, um, and then let's see. He so he is where are we? I think he's just got just gotten down to the surface of the planet. He is in this new bedroom that is to his eyes very opulent, kind of the way Mary Robinette you were talking about the glass of water. You know, yeah. it's it's so what a luxury to have water. <laughs> I don't have to worry about right. Um, this room was evidently for his sole use as it opened off the bedroom. He's talking about the bathroom, I think, and contained only one of each kind of fixture, though each was of a sensuous luxury that far surpassed mere eroticism and partook, in Shevik's view, of a kind of ultimate apotheosis of the excremental. Oh, my gosh. Who writes like this? This is such a good line. Anyway, but this... This is Apotheosis this idea of, of the excremental is the name of my oh next band. Oh my gosh! <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but this idea of of excess is excrement. Um, but then you can drill down into what does it mean to have excess? What is excess? And it can lead you to some interesting places, also some very dark places. You know, you, you have those. Uh, People who say, you know, anybody who lives past the age of 75 has outlived their usefulness and should be killed. Like, there are people who yeah. say these things, right? Um, it, there's that idea that living a long time is excess, you know? So it can lead you to some weird places, but it's such a... Again, it's the dial cranked up to 11, and it forces you to kind of think about what is excess as a as a subjective term. What do I think of as excess? What is excess to somebody else, you know? To those those folks in uh, in Behar, their definition of excess would be very different from yeah. my definition of excess, right? There's a uh, a little subplot. I don't know. I don't know if subplot's the right word on that in her story. Uh, that I 
I didn't really, I appreciate it. I, I took some time to read some other thoughts on the piece to help me process things a little bit. And uh, there is a piece in there where the, um, I can't remember, that the, the other country is Thu. Um, oh, right, the socialist. Yeah. Um, yeah. She kind of writes this third, there's this third entity out there. So we have our- uh, That we never actually first... get to go visit, which yeah. is almost unfortunate. Well, because we, we start out and at, at the beginning, you know, you start reading this book and one of the things is that it feels like at the beginning, like, oh, we've set up a dichotomy of these, this versus this. And that's what mm -hmm. it is. But we get this third group in there that if you just take a little bit of time to think about and realize she's actually taken someone who's even further extreme to one side. And we get to see the interaction between those two worlds just a little bit in the in the war they're fighting over this country. They're like, actually, we don't care about the country itself. It doesn't matter who's running that. It's it's just it's a power struggle between these two setups. And I think that that actually like it kind of connects to uh, Le Guin being very, very smart about showing that, as you've talked about, dial up to 11. If these are up to 11, they've ripped the knob off, you know, through his knob off. And so she's saying there's even furthers and dangers to the extremes that these groups have taken. There are these just incredible extremes out there and this world's even bigger than these three. So there could be extremes in the other direction too. I don't know how you go more extreme than, uh, you know, uh, an ours, but that's, it, it's possible, I guess. Yeah, she, she was writing this in the aftermath of the Vietnam War mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. putting a lot of her thoughts about, you know, the, those great power struggles and the proxy wars and, and that sort of thing into that. So, yeah, so I think that's that's where that came from. Um, but I, I, I did I Mary Robinette, did I cut you off? It looked like you might have been about to say something. Uh, if I did. I apologize. No, no, no. It, I was going to bring up the Vietnam thing as well, that, that oh, okay. this is she's in direct conversation with with Vietnam when she's writing it. Um, that I can't remember where I read it, uh, but there's a, a quote where she's talking about that she was just tired of, of seemingly endless wars and uh that that you know she she wasn't sure what sort of that that she didn't realize that it was just going to be like that for the rest of her life she thought mm. oh if we protest and and things will change and she's like oh apparently no <laughs> which is kind of a depressing <laughs> well it's it, that that actually gets to one of the things that um that i kept coming back to uh, as i was reading about anaris especially which is human nature, mm. um, that human nature is a real thing. It, mm -hmm. it exists. It is, it is in the short term, at least, you know, if we're talking about hundreds of thousands of years, maybe this isn't true, but in our lifetimes, it is an immutable fact. Human nature isn't going to change. And so, yeah, her, her frustration with, uh, you know, what she called endless wars. It's like, yeah, that's, that's kind of, that, that is the state of the world and, you know, protest though you might, that's not, that's not going to change. Well, it's and, and at the same time, um, I think that that's one of the arguments that she's making in this book is that we have this idea of what human nature is and that human mm -hmm. nature is so shaped by the society that you grew up in. Um, like right now I'm, I'm reading a different book, uh, uh, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, mm -hmm. um, which is, I highly recommend it. One of my uh, wife's favorites. Oh, it's so good. Um, but there's a really early in, there's a, a meditation on strawberries um, and how 
Um, so for people who, sorry, we were talking about two books simultaneously, but I, I promise <laughs> this relates. Um, she's a citizen Potawatomi nation, so Native uh, American. And, um, and she talks about how when she was a child that she and her siblings would collect wild strawberries and that was their, their birthday gift to their dad um, every year. And that it was not that the strawberries themselves were not the gift, that the strawberries were from the land and that the gift was her gift of time and energy, which is a different framing than the way I would have, even though we, we grew up in overlapping space, we, we grew up in, in different nations and and so it it is and, and different cultural constructs, and and that is I think the thing that's happening in uh, in the dispossessed is you know that the, the basic his basic human nature for Shevik is well I don't possess anything like even the the language that they use um, to to you know to, they they try to avoid possessive language, and um, so I, I think that there are things that we think of as basic human nature that are not actually basic human nature. They're societal constructs. Absolutely. No, absolutely. There, uh, there are some fascinating studies out there. And if I can find the links, I'll throw them in the show notes, but uh, no promises. <laughs> you can go look it up. Um, but there, there are really interesting studies where people try to get to the core of, you know, of human nature, you know, however defined, the things that every society seems to to come to, you know, uh, something as basic as, um, you know, the, the fear of of dirtiness, mm -hmm. you know, it, something along those lines where it, it's like every culture comes to this for obvious reasons, uh, and there's a whole list of them. But as you say, we sometimes ascribe to those lists of what is human nature, something that is not. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's, it's an interesting question to try to tackle. Yeah. Uh, Ryan, I, I want to go a little bit different direction with this and, and hit you with this one and see what you have to say. Um, the way that I most appreciate um, explorations of the concepts uh, that we get in this, this book is not typically in novel format. Um, I really like essays. I like books, uh, you know, nonfiction books, exploring these concepts. Um, and it, this, because this was in novel format and because it, the plot such as it was, was so sparse. Uh, and like you said earlier, this is basically, you know, it's a series of vignettes. It's him having conversations for the whole book. It's 400 pages of conversation, more or less. Um, it, it really threw me off. Even as I started to change my expectations around the book, even as I started to try to get on the same page as Le Guin, by the time I was through with it, I still was like, you know what? I really would have liked to have a series of essays where somebody laid this out for me. What about you? Did you, so as, as interested as I am in the book that she wrote, there's still that little part of me that's like, yeah, but I wish you would have wrote a wrote written a different book. What about you? Uh, how how did you kind of how did you end up feeling about the book in that way? 
I think that's Did that really, make any sense? Yeah, yeah. I think it's really funny that you say that because mine is the exact inverse of that, where it was, mm. yeah, I took, it was a novel that felt too much like Who Moved My Cheese? Um, <laughs> in that sense, where I was like, oh, this feels more like a, uh, you know, one of those books where it is written more in essay format, like, because I, my favorites, my appreciation and explorations of these are in the fiction Stories. realm, in the, in the storytelling, because it allows me to, it allows me to put myself in the place of a character and try and um, empathize and understand maybe a little bit better than just the, the common uh, version of a lot of those books where it's, here's a story of how this happened in the office place. And here's how, you know, and you just mm. kind of pull the information from there and then they summarize it for you anyway, a little bit later. Like I prefer that this one, it was a little bit harder because I'm not following the narrative quite the same in the same linear pathway that a lot of stories take. Uh, so it was like, I said, it, it was jarring to hop from essay, you know, mini essay to mini essay to mini essay in the vignettes. Uh, so for me, that was one of the struggles I had reading this initially was dealing with that adjustment to this doesn't feel like a novel but it's still there's enough there that it didn't like like i said i needed a little bit of help uh, going and processing my thoughts and feelings mm -hmm. because i didn't follow it in that structure going and looking up information and and some other people's thoughts and feelings on it to help me connect dots outside of that though it, it was fine now, mary robinette obviously this is one of your favorite books of all time and so so I, I know that you enjoy the delivery system, or at least I, I, I feel comfortable assuming that. But do you have any response to that? Uh, actually, that my first experience with the book was very similar. Um, oh, yeah? That I was like, but this is a book in which nothing happens. Um, <laughs> and the thing which is- Which isn't quite true by the it, end. It is, I mean, no, it's definitely not eventually. true. <laughs> um, it is definitely not true. And and also, you know, things things are happening. It's just- uh, the, um, if you think of conflict as two people having arguments, you know, or, or taking up arms, if you think of it that way, mm. there's like virtually no conflict, uh, through, through most of the book. Um, if you, if you think about stories as being driven by tension, I think that there's tension all the way through the book. Mm, that's fair. And, um, because a lot of what he's dealing with is, you know, th there's a lot of this book that is a coming of age book. Uh, that is, that is him coming to an understanding of himself. I, I think of it as that at the beginning of a character story, a character is basically saying, okay, but who am I even? And at the end of the story, a character is going, ah, this is who I am. And this is like classic that it's not a linear timeline. But, um, but I, I, I had a very similar reaction because I was coming, like when I first read it, I was, I was a, you know, a teen. Um, I'd been a big fan of Wizard of Earthsea. Um, and so I was reading it in the midst of reading, you know, Lord of the Rings, Wizard of Earthsea, lots of Heinlein because, you know, I was a teen in the 80s. Um, oh, we should talk about Heinlein. Okay, yeah, go on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I did think about that. And then I'm like, but I would actually like to recommend a book for people to, that I want them to read now. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and, and then I did a, a reread of it. I don't remember what prompted me to do the reread of it. Um, I think some of it was that there were images that just 
jade in my head. Like there's there's this image of him and um and his his lover. Uh, oh, um, crap! Yeah, I, I, yeah, I should have I should have done a, a really solid reread <laughs> before this, honestly. Um, but there's there's this image that just stays in my head of the two of them and the the barren hill and the silver moonlight and them lying together and talking and the intimacy of that moment and and also the the frustration and the coldness but the that they can have a disagreement that that is a profound disagreement and also that it, it is not it, it it doesn't it doesn't end their relationship you know it hmm. distance they they separate they go their their own ways but they they remain important to each other and and just there there are pieces of it that just kept surfacing in my head and then when i went back and did a reread um when i was in my 30s i think there were uh, there were a number of things that I, as i was rereading it was like oh oh this this thing that has kind of shaped me was from that book and i kept hitting lines was like oh oh i got this from here like um one of the ones is uh uh there's a point around the age of 20 when you have to choose whether to be like everybody else in the rest of your life or to make a virtue of your peculiarities. And, and I remember making conscious decisions when I was in my twenties and saying to a friend, um, yeah, I figure everybody winds up being an eccentric when they're old and I can choose my eccentricities now rather than just having them be random things. I'm like, Oh, that's a hundred percent out of the dispossessed. Mm. <laughs> it's like, Oh, that's where that came from. And, and yeah. so that kept happening. Um, so I, I've, I, I don't like, I don't reread it. It's, it's not, it's not a comfort read. Um, but it, it is a book that I think for me is worth like rereading like once a decade um, because my relationship to the book changes as my relationship to the world changes. And, and that for me, those are the books that excite me. The ones that it's like, every time I read it, it is a different book. Yeah, no, I think, um, it, the, the first Le Guin book I ever read 15 years ago or something was Wizard of Earthsea. Hated it, hated it, couldn't stand it. Terrible read it a, de a decade later for the podcast. And I was like, oh, this is actually great. This is wonderful. Now that I kind of know what to expect, I ended up really liking it. Um, and this book, don't get me wrong. I did not hate this book. I actually liked this book, but it was very unexpected. Um, and I think this will, I, I will benefit from a reread. The book vis-a-vis -vis me will benefit from a reread. And like you say, maybe, you know, waiting for a little while for a slightly different time in my life will make it hit even harder or just even differently. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I think that that's going to be, I, I, I do look forward to rereading this book at some point. What about you, Ryan? Yeah, I, I'm really curious. Here's the thing is I'm really curious as to what would change about my opinion on this book in the future mm -hmm. on a reread. Um, mm -hmm. Because I went through this and there's a lot of things, especially looking at my 
my own history of how my opinion has and and my feelings have shaped. Uh, very similarly, I can go go back to specific moments in uh, literature and media and things like that that have given me an idea that has shaped how I view the world and how I do things. Um, uh, I've I have changed uh, some fairly large points of view in my life in the last five years, mm. um, and I'm curious reading this now. 10 years down the road where I've had a little more time to sit and feel and think the way that I do now, what this would read like for me in 10 years. Um, I think it absolutely would, would hit different for me there. Um, yeah, I, I honestly don't know. I, do I have a strong drive to, I'm not sure. I'll be entirely honest. I'm not sure, Yeah. but I wouldn't say no to it. It would be something that would be like, Oh yeah, you remember, I remember reading that for the author shelf episode. I wonder how I'd feel about it now and just go through it again over, you know, a couple of days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, okay. I, oh yeah, that's right. I wanted to get back to comparisons mm. between this, this book and others that I feel like are similar in a way you brought up Robert Heinlein. Yeah. I couldn't stop thinking about Robert Heinlein during this book, not because <laughs> Robert Heinlein espouses anything close to similar views, but because in a in a somewhat similar way, Robert Heinlein would use stories as a vehicle, as the delivery system for here are some ideas, yeah. right? Um, and I, I quite liked Starship Troopers uh, in part because it just you don't like everything that you read in it, but boy, does it make you think about stuff, right? He he'll bring you questions that you have to grapple with as you go through the story, um, and the, and the other one that I think is. Uh, an interesting comparison point would be Ayn Rand. Um, mm. Again, diametrically opposing views in a lot of ways from Ursula Le Guin, but um, but kind of that same thing. Okay, I've, I've got some ideas. I'm tired of writing essays. Here's a novel. <laughs> in in her case, it was it was you know this this times what five. <laughs> it's just she she wouldn't shut up about her ideas. Um, but uh, does that make sense? Yeah. Where where do we? Do do we feel like this is a fair comparison with those other authors and and the way that they're bringing their ideas out, or is this fundamentally different in some way? I, I have to admit I've never read Rand. Um, I, that's I that's think, that's okay as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I, I think there was you know an assignment, and I I got away with n not. <laughs> um, at Heinlein, I I read. I think I read every Heinlein book, um, and I have I've strong opinions about uh Heinlein and and also would not recommend a Heinlein book there's there's there are other authors you can read that explore these with that some of the baggage she comes with I, I shouldn't say I would never recommend a Heinlein book um because Stranger in a Strange Land like if if you want to talk about a book that was fundamentally pivotal to me I read that at exactly the right time in my life mm -hmm. um and it is not a book that I would hand to somebody now and say, you should read this because, <laughs> but it, it is a book that is exploring some of these same ideas, these ideas of not having possessions, these ideas of, um, you know, uh, having communal living and, and the way, the way that disrupts societies when you, when you start to, to change, change, uh, change the rules on people who are who are mm. fun, really invested in them um because so so yeah 
they definitely explore those ideas. And really, there are very few authors who don't, even the ones who say that they don't. So I would be very, very interested to see if you took a list of authors like like you've done here um, and put them, uh, take them in their books and say, was this a message uh, in the storm form of a story or a story with a message hidden behind it? Kind of do that and put them on a timeline and what's going on in the world. Because we, we often say it's a little bit of a cl- cliche, but we are products of our time and authors mm-hmm. and their works are products of their time. And looking at the time frame that Le Guin writes this, and a lot of people are writing those, they're in a time when having the message needs to be clearer, or is there's a lot more things like the Vietnam War is that you're not going to try and hide your message about Vietnam in three layers of story quite to the same level, you know, as you're dealing with that, as you would maybe nowadays where you've got, uh, you know, there's a little bit of time from uh, and space from that. Um, And authors today will, they'll write things today based on, well, now, can your message be hidden in the story a little more or does it need to be more upfront because we're dealing with this now and I need my audience to understand this concept now? So just just comparing the authors to major life and world events going on around them mm-hmm. and seeing if that affects their story to message ratio. Oh, like, yeah. And, and what the what the world expects at that point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, where the, the Vietnam War had a, a sort of immediacy that maybe our contemporary society lacks uh in some ways i mean in other ways it doesn't but yeah yeah, yeah. No. It, it would get really messy but really interesting yeah uh, elizabeth bear um said at one point that she thought the difference between a um message book like a, a book with a, that was ex, you know a, a mm. book that was exploring an idea and and a message book um or message story is that um, it came down to questions that, uh, that a book that asked questions, but didn't seek to answer them was something that was exploring ideas. And that was, that was just a novel and a book that asked questions and tried to answer them was a message book. And that became a polemic and became uninteresting. Mm. And, mm. you know, on that, that level, I, I do think that she, that Le Guin is, asking more questions than she is actually answering. Um, but it, but stylistically it feels like it does feel like, a, you know, a series of essays. Mm. Like, and, I, and can get it, it, depending on where you're coming from it, it can feel polemical. Yeah. Uh, if that's a word, I'm pretty sure that's a word. I uh, think that uh, is a word. Actually. We're going to run with it. <laughs> um, but it, it's one of those if you if you're on the same wavelength as Le Guin, you're reading this book going yes absolutely, and if you're not, you read parts yeah. of this book and you're like you're horrified yeah. by you know the ideas she's thrown out there, and, and it feels more jarring in that way. Um, well, let's let's begin wrapping this up uh, now. Normally, when we talk about a book on the Legendarium, we finish by saying, "Hey, do you recommend this book?" But Mary Robinette, I kind of feel like uh, that's a moot point with you, just, <laughs> you know. Oh, uh, but let me ask you in a, a slight, slightly more nuanced way, how and when and to whom would you recommend this book? So this is a, I, I would recommend this book for anyone who wants to, to ask questions of themselves about their place in society and, and just to explore ideas. Um, 
And I think I would recommend this to someone who has time to be contemplative um, because it is, you know, it, it, there, there are places where it takes more work than other places. Um, this is it, not a, this is not a Dan Brown page turner. No, it's, it is, um, it's a quiet book. It's a contemplative book. Uh, it is, it's written in an older style. Um, and I, I also think that this is a book that you can pick up and set down. You know, this is a book that you can read in between other books, uh, mm. because you know, as as Ryan noted, that it's it's a series of vignettes. So I think it's possible to read a chapter of this and then read something else and then come back to this. Um, but for me, anyone who is like, you know, I enjoy asking questions. I enjoy doing self reflection. Um, that this is a book that I think has some some teeth that will will nibble at you in ways that you were not expecting it to over over the period of time after you finish reading it i love it uh, ryan can you better that better it absolutely not but <laughs> i my thing that i would recommend to someone who's reading this is i think this would be really good i think it works really well for us because we knew we were coming in to have a discussion as a group find a couple people that you could talk to this book do a book club on this book it, that way you can you can have your reflective moments and then talk about it and ruin some really good friendships that way. <laughs> Perfect. Absolutely. Now, I, I I love what you said, Mary Robinette, earlier about uh, you. Or Gosh, I think it was you. <laughs> Somebody said something about, uh, you know, around the age of 20, right? Yeah. Oh, the, the Ursula Le Guin said that. Uh, in... <laughs> oh, right, right. One of you was talking about no, but but that you you had you read this kind of earlier oh, in your yeah, life and me. then realized mm -hmm. you know how much it had affected you without you uh, understanding it in the moment. Um, it, college age is a great time of life when people are exploring ideas and they are it, it's it's more more difficult now in the age of social media, but uh, traditionally it's been a time when people can crank their dial up to eleven. And see what happens with you know yeah. if if they like certain ways of thinking about the world and whatnot. And this is a great crank it up to eleven book, uh, you know. So if you, if you're around that age, or you know, hey, I'm 36 years old. I'm I'm well past say. that age, but I still love I love cranking that dial up. Um, just especially if it's in a slightly different direction than where I normally go. So I guess that's just another way of saying exactly what you said, Mary Robinette. If, if you're somebody who enjoys asking those questions, enjoys probing in mm -hmm. different directions, then it's, I, I think it's very recommendable. Yeah. And, and also, I think to your point, if you're, if you're somebody who's um, at a phase of life where you're thinking about doing some reinvention of yourself, um, mm. you know, midlife crisis, uh, pivotal milestone now birthday, you know, that that's this is a book that makes you go again with a classic character arc. Well, who am I really? Right. And and depending on how you react to the ideas, it's going to clarify some things for you about <laughs> about who you are. Yeah, I, I think that's a that is accurate and a great note to end on for this book. And Mary Robinette, you have been very generous with your time, and I'm really grateful for that. But we can't end without me asking you about your upcoming project that people need to know about, okay? Uh, this is, uh, it's called The Spare Man, and it's coming out on October 11th. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and I'd love for you to for you to give us a little bit of a, kind of an elevator pitch. Tell us what it's about and, and what people can expect and why we should all pick it up. Uh, so it's a science fiction murder mystery. If you've seen the Thin Man movies with William Powell and Myrna Loy, it is basically the Thin Man in space. Of a happily married couple. The thin man in, in space. space. Yeah, Perfect. Okay. Um, that is correct. <laughs> um, <laughs> happily married couple on their honeymoon uh, with uh, with their small dog, uh, solving crimes on an interplanetary cruise ship between uh, the Earth and Mars. Um, there's murder. Every chapter begins with a cocktail recipe. There are zero proof cocktail recipes for people who prefer their celebratory beverages without alcohol. Um, uh, but yeah, there's uh, witty banter, canoodling, uh, again, small dog. And for those who are worried, uh, I do not kill the small dog because I understand the rules. I do not promise that the small dog is not placed into danger. Um, her name is Gimlet. <laughs> She's a service dog. Um, <laughs> Uh, I think me. that just you should lead with that. It, there's a dog named Gimlet. And, uh, <laughs> just go read the book, right? Right. Uh, but yeah, basically, a science fiction murder mystery with some comedy in space uh, and a small dog. I honestly, I am sold. <laughs> Ryan, you and I are both grinning like school yeah. children right now because this sounds like so much fun. Yep. So. That, there, there were so many uh, keywords in that that just checked all the boxes for me. Just <laughs> ding, 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 ding. I'm like, perfect. That honestly, it, with that checklist idea, that may be the best elevator pitch any author has given us on the entire run of the author's shelf. Um, that is fabulous. Yeah, because you, know, you don't that, want the that. plot. You just want to know what which pieces of the ride am I getting? <laughs> yeah. what, what kind of flavor are you serving yeah. up for me here? And I, yeah. I like that. Yeah. Uh, so it's called the Spare Man. Uh huh. And with that in mind, I, it's I, I hope people will go check it out, pick it up, and and let me know if you do. <laughs> it would be great to hear about people picking up the Spare Man, um, uh, and and pick up the Dispossessed. Mary Robinette Kowal, thank you so much for picking this book. My, I, I say this, I feel like I say this on almost every author shelf episode. One of my favorite things about this series is that it gets me to read books that I wouldn't normally read that that aren't on my radar that i wouldn't pick up you know for not not because i don't like them but because they just aren't on my radar and i really appreciate you throwing this one our way it's uh it's wonderfully rewarding so thank you very very much yeah thanks for i love the premise of this and you all are delightful conversationalists so thanks for taking <laughs> a chance on a on a book from 1974 <laughs> oh absolutely and for those of you listening thank you so much for listening we appreciate you doing so. Please go to thelegendarium.com where you can find all the links for all the stuff. The Discord server, which is the friendliest place on the entire internet, I promise. It's wonderful and delightful. And we can converse about this and many other books. And you'll also find our link to Patreon. Please support us there if you appreciate what we do on this show. Uh, all right, once again, uh, Ryan, thanks for joining and thanks for reading. Mary Robinette Kowal, thank you so much for picking the book and for being, again, so generous with your time. And I will see you all next time.